One of the greatest mysteries facing humanity today is really the mystery of suffering. People don't understand it. It's hard for them to get their minds around it. Uh, they wonder, really, where does it come from? Why is it in the world? What is its cause? How can we get rid of it? Why is it that some people seem to suffer greatly and others seem to find ways of escaping it kind of altogether? The truth is, I don't think there's really very many barriers that are greater to believing in God than human suffering. Uh, for some people, it keeps them from believing. You'll hear on occasion somebody say, I just can't believe in a God that would allow innocent people to suffer. And then for others, it seems to cause them to stop believing. Too many of us have known people in church and, and friends of ours, maybe even church members and people that we served with and walked with in the faith, broke bread together, and, and yet because of some great tragedy in their life, because of some difficulty that has arisen and they begin to suffer over a period of time, the suffering is so great that they fall away from the faith almost altogether. The truth is this. The truth is that most people who reject the existence of God, I'm going to pause just for a second. There's so much moving. In. I'm so pretty. I don't know how you keep your, you keep your eyes off me. It keeps looking everywhere else, but let me just wait just for a moment. <clears throat> it's opposite day, by the way. And so the truth is most people who reject the ex existence of God do so not because they arrive at an intellectual conclusion, but rather it is a, a emotional response to suffering. So it's not as though they think through all the truth and everything that they see in this world and come to a logical conclusion, there must not be a God. It is instead an emotional response to the suffering that they see around them that say, I just cannot believe that there is a God. And this isn't new. People from the beginning of, of, of humanity has always struggled trying to understand suffering in our world. There's a lot of aspects of it that are confusing. In, in fact, 2,000 years ago in Luke chapter 13, we see in the beginning of this chapter that people were suffering and struggling from it then to try to make sense of it all. We see that in, in an interaction uh, between a group of Jewish people and Jesus Christ. And what we see in the text is in the passage, we see both, we see both the people's confusion concerning suffering and Jesus' clarification of suffering. Now, let me say this this morning before we begin. There is a whole theology of suffering that we can do. There's a great deal that the Bible teaches on it and says about it, and I've got 30 minutes to say a little bit about it this morning. But what I want to say is I don't want to say everything about it, but I want to say what is addressed here within this particular text. It will take all of that 30 minutes that we have together this morning. So let me suggest this. It's kind of a hard pack, uh, a passage to really break up perfectly. So I really just have two truths I want to share with you, and they're going to help us kind of work through this text. Truth number one. The cause of suffering is not always certain. The cause of suffering is not all, all, always certain. Look at verse 1, if you will. The Bible says there were some present at that very time who told him about the, the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, outside of the Bible, we don't find any record of this, no historical record of this particular event. In fact, it's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible as well. So we don't know a whole lot about it, which has led to a great deal of speculation. And I don't want to speculate about what happened, uh, but there are things that we do know that, that really Luke reveals to us. 
there was a group of, group of people, Jewish people from Galilee, who traveled to Jerusalem, and there they came to make sacrifices for sins. And, and when they came, Pilate actually took them and slaughtered them. Now, we're not exactly sure exactly why this happened, but we are told by a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus that, that Pilate could not stand the Jewish people, and specifically the people from, uh, from Galilee. And the reason is, is because every time he turned around, there seemed to be any kind of revolt against the Roman uh, leadership. It always seemed to be surrounded by some Galilean somewhere. And so he hated them, and oftentimes he was causing so much bloodshed amongst them that at one time, or at least one time, if not two, uh, Rome actually called him up. Caesar told him that if he didn't quit slaughtering all these people, that they were going to basically demote him, take away his position, and, and, and he would no longer have it. This is possibly why that later in, when Jesus stands before him as a man from Galilee, that, that he would stand before Jesus in, or stand before him and he washes his hand. He doesn't want to cast judgment on Jesus because he doesn't want any more Galilean blood on his hands. But here he decides that he wants to kill these men. What is it for? We don't know. Could have very well been that he was just suspicious. He always thought that they were going to do something. And so he, believing that they would, he ended up taking and striking first and putting them to death. And when he slaughtered them, he actually slaughtered them on the Temple Mount. How do we know? Because it says that their blood was mixed with the blood of the animals that they were sacrificing at this time. But it wasn't just Pilate that hated, that hated the Galileans. It was also really the people from Jerusalem, the citizens of Jerusalem. And that is because they had a high view of themselves. They viewed themselves as the intellectual and cultural elite, while they believed that the Galileans were from Yuli. That's exactly right. They, they believed they were, they were just simple country folk, that they were uneducated, that they were, that they were um, unrefined. And so, so based on what Jesus says here, what we find is that these citizens from Jerusalem believe that those Galileans that were slaughtered deserved it. That they believe that they had done something so heinous and so awful that this was the judgment of God that fell on them. That was the only possible conclusion to what was going on. They were extremely and exceedingly sinful people. Now, could that be the case? Yes, it could. In fact, when we read Jesus' words, he says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? The answer is yes. We think they died because they were more sinful than other people and God ultimately judged them. Jesus comes back and says, no. Is it a possibility that we could suffer because of our sins directly? Yes. Would we agree about that? All of us have done something sinful and experienced the, the, experience the consequences of those, sometimes immediately and sometimes seriously. And we've all done that. And the Bible warns us against sin because of that very thing. But not all suffering, beloved, is in direct correlation to the sin that we ultimately commit. Sometimes we suffer simply because we live in a sinful world. Back in the beginning, when Adam and Eve fell... All of the world was fractured. It was marred by sin, centered into the sin. And when man sinned, he invited in all different types of suffering into this world. So sometimes you and I suffer by no, no, no direct correlation to sin that we commit. Sometimes it's just because we are in a sinful world itself. It's kind of like suffering from secondhand smoke. It's like you're not the smoker, 
But because the person is polluting the air around you and you're taking it in, there are going to be different things that you're going to experience and your, your health is going to be impeded because of what's the toxicity that's in the air. It's the same exact thing with sin. It's everywhere around us. So sometimes we suffer because it's our own fault. Sometimes we suffer just because we live in a lost world. And sometimes we suffer because somebody else has sinned against us. In this particular case, we see that it was Pilate who was doing it. But this, this wasn't in the mind of the people. The main thought and the main belief during the day is you do something wrong and God is going to judge you. In fact, if you are judged and bad things happen, it is because you are a sinner and a terrible one at that. And so this is the thought. One one author, William Hendrickson, kind of sums this up when he says the people who were crowding around Jesus did not interpret this incident as an illustration of Pilate's cruelty, such at least was not their main purpose. Instead, or rather, evidence of the divine pleasure, displeasure with the slaughtered Galatians. Their reasoning was the, victims, the victim of Pilate's wrath must have been very wicked indeed. Otherwise, God would not have allowed them to be put to death in this particular fashion. Again, is it possible? Yes. Is that what happened here? Jesus says succinctly, no. In essence, it teaches us, because we live in a lost world, another way of saying it is it rains on the just and it rains on the unjust either way. Now, listen, if you have that thought, and sometimes we suffer with that, sometimes something bad happens to somebody or even happens bad to us, and we think to ourselves, what what was it that they or what was it that I did that now I'm deserving that God is judging me for this particular thing? What did I do or what did they do? And if we think that way, we're in theological trouble. There's a lot of theological troubles we're going to experience. For example, in the Word of God, we find out that the Bible actually teaches us that sometimes we suffer for righteousness' sake. We're actually commanded to do so by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, look, what good is it if you suffer for doing what is wrong? You ought to suffer for doing what is right. Well, how in the world can we fulfill and undertake and accept that teaching by Paul if we think all suffering comes from doing what is evil? Likewise, what do we do with passages like Hebrews chapter 11 when we read about the hall of faith? There's a whole group of people who are listed there in Hebrews chapter 11 who suffered for righteousness sake. There were believers who were being praised because they gave their lives in so many ways. They, they gave their life by being obedient and they were sawn in two. They were boiled in oil. They were, they were sewn up in animal skins and thrown to wild beasts. And yet they're being praised there because they suffered not for doing wrong, but what is righteous. And then it's not only that. What do we do with the gospel? What do we do with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? If Jesus Christ died for his sins, you and I are in so much trouble. Because if he had to die for his own sin, then he could have never have died for our own. So that type of thinking causes a great deal of theological and practical problems. There was a man by the name of John Milton who was a blind English poet. And uh, he had become very old. And and when he got older and older, uh, he became more and more obscure. Nobody really knew where he was. He began to just kind of live out somewhere all by himself. And there was a guy who hated him. His name, he was was King Charles II. And, And he hated him because he hated all Puritans. Because the Puritans actually put his father, Charles I, to death. And he really held John Milton, hated him because he was one of those Puritans. And so when John Milton, at the end of his life, was alone and blind and destitute, 
Charles came to him, Charles II came to him and basically told him, the reason that you're suffering is because of your own sin by putting my father to death. And John Milton said to him, he says, if I have lost my sight through God's judgment, what can you say of your father who lost his head? In other words, if something bad happened to me for my sin, how much greater must your father's sin have been because his head was taken from him? The idea is it's difficult and it would be wrong for us to assume that all suffering in this world is directly caused by somebody sinning, an act of specific sin. And so good things, we need to remind ourselves that good things don't always happen. This sounds so simple, but what an important reminder. Good things don't always happen to people who are doing good things. Bad things don't always happen to people who are doing bad things. People do good things, and guess what? Bad things happen. People do bad things, and you look around, and you're scratching your head, and good things seem to be happening to them. And, and, and all of us will say, even a lost world, that's just so messed up. If you do good, good should come to you. If you do bad, bad should come to you. That's the way it should be. But what else would we expect by living in an upside down, backwards, sin-saturated uh, sin world that is really led and controlled at this point by Satan himself? What, do we, what else would we expect? The, Jesus comes back and he basically emphasizes, he, he's going to emphasize this point that not all sin not all people suffer because of their direct sin, and not all people who suffer uh, really are greater sinners than anyone else. And he gives an example. I love this. I don't have to come up with an illustration because Jesus gives it. He gives a modern-day illustration. Look at verse 4. He says, or those 18 of whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed, what, he says, he says, do you think that they were worse offenders? There it is. First was worse sinners. Do you think they're worse sinners? Here, do you think they're worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? So inside the southeast portion of the city wall of Jerusalem was, uh, was a pool called the Pool of uh, Siloam. And we read about it in John chapter 9. I've preached on it before. Uh, it was a blind man who Jesus tells to dip into the pool of Siloam, and he receives his sight once again. And, and, uh, and, and, and near this pool, uh, there was a tower. We don't know much about it. Some people believe that it was a part of an aqueduct because the water for this pool was actually carried from outside of the city into the city. But we can't be sure why. But whatever it was, everybody knew about this event. It's kind of like 10 years from now when we sit there and go, hey, do you guys remember the COVID thing? Nobody's going to sit back and go, I don't know what you're talking about, right? If you were alive, you're going to be like, yeah, I remember that. And, and so this was the same thing. Everybody knew it was all in the news that there was a tower that fell. And when it fell, it killed 18 innocent people. They all knew that. It was, it was a tragedy. People sit back and go, that's terrible. Nobody assumed that the people did it by climbing the tower with toilet paper and spray paint and spraying graffiti on public property. That's not why it fell. It fell either for an earthquake. It may have fallen just because of bad engineering. We don't know, but it fell. And so he gives this illustration to show, look, not all suffering in this world is directly related to someone's sin. And those who are suffering are not necessarily more sinful than those who are not suffering. Christians, we have to be reminded that righteous and unrighteous suffer in this world. Believers and unbelievers suffer in this world. I know as many Christians who have died of cancer as I do non-Christians who have died of cancer. 
I know believers that have been abandoned by a loved one. I know believers who have lost a spouse, believers who have lost a child. It's a horrific thing. And the reason for that is because we live in a world that is fallen. And not every single time somebody is suffering is it directly related to sin in their life. Why are these things so important for us to grasp? Let me give you three reasons. It's important to grasp for for three reasons. First, if we grasp this truth, that is that not all sin is directly caused to someone's, or, or someone's suffering is not always directly caused by someone's sin, we no longer live a life of continual condemnation. Jesus said this in John 16, verse 33. He says, in the world, you will have tribulation. There is no promise that you will not have tribulation. There is a promise of Jesus Christ that in this world, you will have much tribulation and much suffering. That is the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, we are going to suffer. And here's the idea. If you and I, every time things begin to go wrong, things begin to go poorly, you and I find ourselves in difficulty or we begin to suffer in some way, if we begin to immediately begin and all the time think that God is after us in judgment because we are somehow sinful and deserving of it at that particular point, we can never walk in grace and mercy of God in the hope of God. We always feel condemned. We always feel shamed. Now, does this mean in, in some perspective, that there aren't times that we do what is wrong and, and, and then we're being judged or disciplined. Yes, if we're his children, he loves us, so he will discipline us if we do what is wrong, but it is not always the case. Should we search our hearts when we're in the midst of suffering or something terrible happens? Yes, search your heart to see if there be any wicked way in me. We ought to pray that before God and he will reveal it as we know. But sometimes he brings it for just other purposes. Not because we're in sin, but perhaps to be able to even test our faith. And if we keep going around all the time feeling condemned, then we're going against and we're not learning to live in grace and the mercy of God. And there's no hope and there's no peace and there's no love for him. We're always shy. We're always feeling intimidated to come to him. Second, if we we grasp this truth, it will keep us from adding to someone's suffering, adding to someone else's suffering. The worst thing you could do to somebody is make a judgment based on why things are wrong in their life. And what I mean by that is something really tragic happens. They lose a loved one or they get into a car wreck or they lose a job. If you and I come to them and say, hey, let me sum it up for you what's happening. It's because of your sin. Not a good thing. Not wise. And the reason is because how do we know what it is? It rains on the just and the unjust. Bad things happen to good people and bad people, obedient people and disobedient people. How would we know? You say, well, people don't do that. Well, they certainly did it during Bible times. They did it here. This was one of the biggest problems that that Job faced. Do you remember Job? Good old righteous Job. There's nobody in the world more righteous than he. And what happens? Everything falls apart. Loses his home. He loses his kids. He loses his health. The only thing he didn't lose is his wife. What does that say about his wife? She was not a blessing, right? She said, curse God and die. God's like, I'm gonna take away every good thing. And his wife is left behind. Don't nudge your wife. Don't do that. And so the idea is that there's this great suffering and she brought even more suffering on him. And at the end of the day, we know, we know as the readers of that book that he didn't do anything to be able to deserve this. Instead, we find out that God was refining him. And really, one of the ultimate pictures is what he was trying to find out is, will man love me for nothing? 
If I give you no blessings, if I give you no good thing, will you still love me? He was testing his, flesh, his faith. But what happens with his three friends? Friends, air quotes. They come to him and they go, bro, you must have done something really, really bad because this just doesn't happen to good people. There's no other explanation. So here's a hurting man and more heaping mounds of hurt and pain and suffering are placed on him by other people. That's not what we want to be able to do. We don't wanna be a part of that. You say, well, do people do that today? Remember in 2005 with uh, Hurricane Katrina? That's another one of those where like, oh, absolutely. If you were alive, you remember it. Horrible, horrible hurricane comes and just seems to sit down and almost stop right in Louisiana and New Orleans. So many people killed, so many of, of their lost all, everything that they owned. They lost loved ones and material things and houses. And, and, then, and then what happens? Some, some, some prominent pastors, some, some of the guys that I really respect begin to say, this no doubt was the judgment of God. And yet there were not only sinners in New Orleans, but there were also born again believers in Jesus Christ who love him and wanna serve him and wanna follow him. And so what are you doing? What, what kind of pain would that bring somebody who lives in that area that this was a direct cause of their sin? It would be painful. One of the examples that I see that is most painful is, is when some people from uh, a Pentecostal background, not all, I, I love my brothers and sisters in Christ, Pentecostal people, but some of them have this warped, bad theology that basically says, hey, if you just have enough faith and you live right, sickness shouldn't be in your life. You should never get sick. And that's just contrary to the clear teaching of the word of God. One of the worst examples of this was when I was in, when I was in North Carolina and I was just visiting somebody else, but I saw this couple weeping in, uh, on, on the side of the hallway right next to the, um, right next to the um, a waiting room. And, and I felt like I just need to stop. I said, are y'all all right? Can you need some prayer? And their child was sick. And they kind of came from that background that if you just have enough faith, you won't be sick. And their pastors who were there had told them, if you just have enough faith, your child will be okay. And in that period of time, they came and said that your child had died. What kind of burden now does those parents have to live with of sitting there saying, I, I was sinful. I didn't have enough faith to be able to save my own child. That is a, that is a burden that nobody should bear. And it comes from this bad idea and this bad theology. Let me give you a third thing. The third thing is this, is if we grasp this truth, it will keep us from falling away from the faith. It will keep us, now listen, let me say, I don't believe it's truly possible for a born again believer who's been sealed by the Holy Spirit to fall away from the faith. But what I do believe is that tragedies and difficulties reveal whether a person is truly in the faith or not. Are you with me? That's what it does. It's like heat, it's like a boiling pot of water. It, it, you, you, take, you take a boiling pot of water, and ladies and men who cook, you, you throw a potato in there. What happens to the potato? It becomes soft. You throw a, an egg in there, and what ends up happening? It becomes hard. It does two different things, but yet it's the same heat. It, it, it's, it's the, the reformers used to say it's like a candle. He says the same, the same um, flame that melts the wax also hardens the clay. And that's what difficult do, it, it, difficulties do. They reveal what a person's faith is all about. And when a person is sold a bill of goods and comes to Jesus Christ primarily to escape the difficulties of this world, it's revealed in difficult, hard times because now they think that Jesus Christ has let them down. I came to faith for him to deliver me from hardship. He's not doing it. Why should I keep following him? He didn't keep his end of the bargain. But for a true believer in Jesus Christ, it softens their hearts, doesn't it? Because they didn't come to faith in Jesus Christ for a better life. 
they came to be rescued from a greater tragedy to come, the judgment of God. So where else do we cling? Where else do we go? But our hearts are softened towards the person of Jesus Christ. So after Jesus corrected their false understanding on human suffering, telling them that the cause of suffering cannot always be certain, Jesus then tells them, second point, that there are truths concerning suffering that are certain, that are certain. Now notice he repeats the same sentence twice. After he gives the two examples, he says the same thing. Verse 3, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Then in verse 5, he repeats it again. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I think there are at least three things that we can discern from this statement. Let me give it to you very quickly. Number one, it is certain that all people are guilty of sin and deserving of eternal suffering. Jesus wasn't trying to make the, the, the claim that those Galileans who died or the people who died underneath the crushing blow and the crushing fall of the tower were sinless. That's not what his point was at all. What he was saying is it wasn't their direct, them dying and them being slayed was not directly related to a particular sinful act that they had committed. And what they're really doing is he's saying, hey, look, they weren't the only sinners. They're not the only one who were sinful. He says, do you think they're more sinful? Do you think that they're more guilty than you? The idea and the inclination is that they were, in fact, guilty. And then he says there, and the idea is that he tells them to repent. Now, he's telling the audience who was judging the others to repent. So note what he's doing. He's drawing their attention away from evaluating the guilt of someone else, and he's drawing their attention to their own guilt and their own sin. When he says, unless you repent, he's assuming and he's suggesting to them there's something for them to repent from. What is that? That's sin. Now, what does repent mean? It means to turn. That's what it means. Now, it's important for us to understand that repent does not mean penitence. Penitence means you feel bad for doing something. When we get caught, we always feel bad for doing something. That's not what the Bible is calling us to do. Now, there is a sorrow that leads to salvation, but there's also a sorrow that leads to more grief, right? So there is a good sorrow we can have, but repenting is more than that. And it's not, it's not penance either. Some people think to repent is penance. What that means is now that I know that I've done wrong, I'm going to do as many good things as I can do to make up for all that I did wrong. That's penance. That's not repentance. Repentance is turning from sin in self and turning to Jesus Christ in faith. So the Bible says, so these people, again, think, they're looking at these people and they're making a judgment. Did they suffer because they're really bad sinners? Jesus says, don't worry about them. The question is, what are you going to do about your own sin? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he says, and the wages of that sin is death. I love what one author says here. One author states that the people were asking the wrong question from the beginning. It was not, why did these people die? But what right do we have to live as sinners? So the first thing is that we see within the text of Scripture is we see that there, is, there are some certainties here. Uh, the second thing that we see is that it is certain that the suffering of God's judgment will fall on all sinners. Look at that last statement. He says, you will likewise perish. In other words, if you don't repent, you are no doubt going to perish. And so people sometimes really get frustrated with this because they, they go around, all you hear about today is justice, 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 right? Justice needs to be done. Justice needs to be served. And there is something inside of all of us that wants justice to be done, do we not? 
We yearn for justice, for right things to be done. When we see people who are doing terrible, horrible things and they get away with it, we wonder and we'll cry out, where is the justice? Are you with me in this? We, our hearts do crave for an aspect of this, but here's where people fail. And this is why they struggle with their faith in God. They struggle because this life is not when God's perfect justice is met. This world is not a place where God's perfect justice is ever going to be met. In this world, every good deed is not going to be rewarded. Every evil deed is not going to be judged. That will happen in the world to come. That will come as God's final judgment. And then what we find is people will sit there and say, well, why doesn't God do anything about it? God is a God who is supposed to do something right. He's righteous. Why doesn't he, why doesn't he then bless right now, bless all those who are doing good and judge all those who are doing wrong? Why? Because he's gracious and he's merciful. Because when that day comes, beloved, when that day of final judgment comes, there will be no time, there will be no place for people to repent. So Jesus Christ is able to delay what he does not like, and that is the suffering of people in order to bring about something even greater, and that is the salvation and the redemption of sinful mankind. God, sometimes, I love this, Joni Erickson, Erickson, Erickson taught it, says this, he says, God sometimes allows what he hates to bring about what he loves. For you and I, the way that we deal, one of the ways we deal with the suffering in this world is we understand that it's temporary. It makes us hate sin all the more because we know it's a result ultimately of a sin that needs to be redeemed. And we hope for that, but we rest patiently even in the midst of our suffering because every minute that we endure, another person may come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's a completely different way to view our suffering. Third, it is certain that we can escape the greater future suffering of God's judgment. Notice that phrase again, unless you repent. Here's the thinking. Unless you repent, because you're a sinner, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. But think of the positive of that. If you repent as a sinner, you will not perish. Why? Because it, we have two choices. Either to let the wrath of God for our sin fall on us at judgment or allow our sins to fall on the person of Jesus Christ at Calvary and on the cross. And when we, by faith, accept what he did for us on the cross and say, God, you died for me, and I receive that by faith, then there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, we get this whole thing wrong. The people got this wrong, and it's a common mistake that we all make. Everybody in the world is trying to figure out who are the good guys and the bad guys, right? And they think that their whole life is to go, hey, we got to pick out the good guys and the bad guys, and I need to know that I'm one of the good guys. And so I heard a pastor recently say something on this, and I thought it was good and worth me reading his quote. He said, the Bible is not a book about good guys and bad guys, and our job is not to figure out which one we are. It's about the fact that every, every one of us are bad guys, and there is only one good guy, Jesus Christ, who died for all of us bad guys. Amen. Amen and amen. I sit back and I think of this, and I've known too, too many people who have really focused too much on temporal suffering. And I say that with a compassion. I just wish I could, I, I could let you understand the compassion in which I grieve for people suffering in the hardships that they go through, and sometimes what they're going through is unimaginable to me if I had to go through it myself. But I do know the great danger of it. 
is that if they continue focusing on why are these things happening, questioning about whether God is good because he allows these things to happening, if they keep pressing in that, their heart will be hardened and they will never be born again. You know, I, I, um, I think the very definition of, of suffering is to be the youngest child. I really do. Especially if you have an older brother and sister and your parents like to drive a lot. And if you do, that means that you're in the back seat. And if you're the youngest, where do you sit of the three seats? Thank you very much. That's exactly right. I hear an amen. And you have to sit in the amen. Well, you have to sit in the amen. That's weird. Um, <laughs> but you sit in the middle. And what ends up happening there is it's really a place of abuse. And we would, we would drive. And then what we do is we have these kind of imaginary lines. We had these really dorky seats back in the 70s that basically just have these like lines in the, in the material in your seats. And I know it's very weird. And so they're like green and whatnot. But anyway, and here's the rule. Don't cross the line. Cross the line and pay the consequences. That's basically what would happen. So one person's foot goes to the other side and your foot gets crushed by another foot. Your, your leg or your arm falls on the other side and you get, you get frogged. Do you know what that is? You remember getting frogged with a little knuckle, right? I mean, heaven forbid that your head falls asleep and falls over into somebody else's aisle or area and you wake up with a black eye. And so this is the type of suffering. And so this would happen all the time. My dad would get so tired of this. I know this never happens to any of you. You're driving and the kids are fighting in the back. And, and, and what do the parents say? If you don't stop, I'm turning this car around, right? And so this one time we got inside the car and my dad was going to take us to go, run, go, go, go uh, ride go-karts. And we were so excited. We had never done it before. We just couldn't wait. We knew that was going to be glorious. And so we got inside the car and sure enough, we started just fighting with each other in the backseat, stomping, frogging, doing whatever you have to do. And he kept saying, listen, if you don't stop, I'm going to turn around. But at this point, you are so overwhelmed by the suffering and injustice. That's all you can think about. And you can't understand why, why is this happening? And you're fighting and they're fighting you and nobody's happy. The next thing we know, we're pulling back into our driveway. See, my dad is unlike many of us as parents. He doesn't just threaten, he promises. And so what we do is my parents go back into the house and we all three sit in the car and we just weep. We just, how are we so stupid, right? Is what we're thinking to ourselves. How could we be so overwhelmed with this? And then we start blaming, why did you just stay on your side? And we start yelling at each other in this way. And it's probably not the perfect illustration, but there are so many people in this world that are so transfixed on the immediate suffering of this world, they are going to miss out on something far glorious to come. Because they allowed those difficulties, those difficulties in their life and the suffering in their life to deter them from placing faith in a good and a gracious and a merciful God. Let's pray.